Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, again, uh, a big welcome to you this morning, those of you joining us in person, those of you online, and uh, kids in the room. It's so great to have you with us. Uh, My name's Andrew. I'm one of the interim co-lead pastors here at First Alliance. And as you know, if you've been journeying with us this Advent season, we've been in a series exploring who the God is who comes to us at Christmas time. We've watched and seen how this God is light, how this God is peace and how he is love. And today we're going to consider the claim, which I think is probably one of the most stunning claims of Christmas, that this baby is king. So uh, would you open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 2? We're going to get into God's word as we want to go deep in Jesus. We believe that the Bible tells us who Jesus is, that this isn't just information, it's revelation that leads to transformation in our lives. And as we get into the word today, I hope we're going to see how following King Jesus and submitting to his rule brings deep rest to our souls. So open your Bible to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles and you're new to church and how to use a Bible, you can find our passage on page 783. As we get into God's word, let's give ear for this is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." When Herod called the Magi, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star... They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Uh, to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take this child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, the same spirit who inspired Matthew to pen these words with that spirit. Would you, Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts and minds? Would you come for the renewal of worship and witness in us together as your church and in us personally for each one? We pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. I want us to think about this scene. I want us to consider how earth-shattering the announcement was, or really the question was that the Magi brought with them to Jerusalem. So Matthew is really keen to tell us in the first verse that all of this is happening, that this stuff at Christmas is happening in a time when King Herod was the king. Herod was also known as Herod the Great, cruel, ruthless, and a bit paranoid as we see in our story. And so these magi come from the east. Well, who were these guys? They come from the east, probably from the Persian or Babylonian world. Um, These guys were scholars of philosophy, of spirituality, of science, and astrology. They were kingmakers in the Persian world. For those of you who know your Bible, if you remember back to the story of Daniel, there's another king who rules in Babylon, and he has a dream. And what he does in Daniel 2 is he summons, it says, his magicians enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him his dream. That's who these guys were. That's who these magi were. It's where we still get our English word for magic. Magi. These are really unlikely people. They were curious pagan spiritual seekers come to Jerusalem, and they ask a very disturbing question, don't they? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Just imagine the pressure and the tension in that moment. Can you remember what it was like in 2020 with the presidential election going on in the US? Remember how charged that moment was with tension? It was all people were thinking about. I have never watched American news channels as much as I did in that time. It was a polarizing moment, charged with clashing ideologies, different visions of of what is needed to bring in a just and peaceful society. Everybody was glued to the news because we all know that whoever rules holds a ton of power and a ton of sway in our lives. It's, it's the same moment going on here in the Christmas story. Caesar had called a census, right? That's why Mary and Joseph had the unfortunate circumstances of having to travel like 80 miles on foot, hopefully on a donkey, pregnant, Let me tell you, that would not have been fun. And the reason Caesar called a census was to gloat, right? uh, Israel was under the boot of the Roman Empire, and Israel calls a census to gloat, to say, look at how powerful I am, but also, you accountants here will love this, to make sure he was getting every single tax dollar he could, right? That's their situation. The Jewish people were sick of being under Rome and they were sick of Herod's cruelty because he was just Caesar's puppet anyway. And people longed for a leader who would deliver them. And so the Magi show up and trigger this wave of tension and trouble by that simple question, where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? Because last time we checked, Herod's like, I'm the king, I'm right here. 
and we know he's not the most stable king. And so when, when the, the king gets troubled, it's understandable. All of Jerusalem gets troubled with him, right? They're like, oh no, what's he gonna do now? Don't poke the bear. There's Herod and then there's Jesus. And the question that this text is placing before us today is who is really king? Who's really in charge? And even more to the point and personally for us, which king are you going to follow? Let's hold on to that question as we consider what this text announces to us about King Jesus. It shows us what kind of king he is. How did Jesus come and how did he rule? That's what we're going to consider. So in general, when royalty comes to town, uh, we, we get all dressed up, right? We put our best foot forward. In general, kings and queens and rulers and presidents, they are sheltered from the real world. So in 1958, when Princess Margaret came to visit Toronto, the Don River smelled so badly that as uh, Margaret was making her way over the, one of the bridges that crosses the river, they had poured tons and tons of perfume upstream into the Don River so that when she crossed it and she came, she would smell... You know, wow, Toronto is a really beautiful city. This river smells incredible. It smells like Chanel. I, don't, I wonder if they had Chanel back then. But the point is that usually kings and queens and rulers, they're totally severed from the real world. They don't know what it's like to smell the Dawn River on a normal day. And if you know the Christmas story at all, Jesus didn't come like kings and queens usually come. Right? They didn't roll out the red carpet. Society's elites weren't there. There weren't trumpets sounding. The military wasn't there to welcome him. There was no room for him. There was no room for him anywhere. He was born in a stable, which, remember for us city folk, a stable is a really dirty, stinky, unhygienic place. In our kind of germophobic era, we wouldn't go any near, anywhere near a stable. We would not want a baby to be born anywhere near a stable. It's full of animals and they're byproducts. Come on. Jesus came humbly. He was born in a stable. And then after he's born, our text details what happens. He's chased by Herod out of the country. The God of the universe became a refugee. And he's taken to Egypt as a refugee by his parents. This is how this king comes. And here's the bottom line. King Jesus knows what it's like to be vulnerable. He knows what it's like to be on the run. He knows what it's like to be under pressure. He knows what it's like to be troubled. In a world where what it means to be king is to be cut off from the people, sheltered from real life, Jesus comes into the really real of our world. One of my favorite lines in all the songs we sing around Christmas time comes in uh, that song, O Holy Night. It says, He knows our need. To our weakness, He's no stranger. He knows your need to your weakness is no stranger. This is not normal for kings, but this is how Jesus comes. He comes into the mess of our world at the bottom. So how does he rule, right? We've all heard kind of the fairy tale stories of, of the leader who rises, you know, from the grassroots and becomes a great leader, and then they become tyrants. So how does Jesus rule? Look in verse six with me. It's the quote from Micah, the prophet who, who is... Uh, announcing where the Messiah, the, the anointed king is going to be born. It says, but you, Bethlehem, 
in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This ruler will shepherd. It's not just announcing that there's going to be a ruler. It's announcing how he's going to rule, shepherd. This is the guiding metaphor. This is the guiding image for Jesus's kingship. And and let's just consider, what is a shepherd? It's not a glorious vocation. It was really, you know, at the bottom of society, shepherds were not people you wanted to be. Uh, They were out in the fields, um, really working ridiculous hours for really low pay, uh, caring for sheep, guiding sheep, tending sheep, making sure that uh, the sheep were well-fed and watered and healing their wounds. And at, at its heart, the job of a shepherd is presence. The job of a shepherd is presence with the sheep. Jesus says as much. In, in John chapter 10, Jesus is giving some teaching and he's talking about how he is the shepherd. And he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. This isn't just head knowledge. This is relational knowing that comes from presence with I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. You see, usually in our world, power means separation, right? The higher up you climb on the ladder, the more separation there is between you and the people below you. But this shepherd, this shepherd king knows his sheep, and his sheep know me. I mean, just think about your workplace. Have you ever fantasized what it would be like to get that promotion, to be in that position of authority that that you long for. And and some of our thoughts to that end go like this. You know, once I'm promoted, I won't have to deal with customers. Once I'm promoted, I won't have to serve others. I won't have to do the menial tasks I hate doing. I won't have to do anything I don't want to do because I'll be important. I won't have to deal with people I don't want to deal with because I'll be important. You see, the higher you go, the more distance there is, right? Do we have access to the prime minister of our country? Absolutely not. You know, kings and leaders and celebrities, they have an entourage. They've got bodyguards, and there is no access. But this king, King Jesus, has access open to his people. He's present with us. He's available Usually royalty and power means distance, but with Jesus, power means presence. There's one more thing I want to say about Jesus being the shepherd king. In this same text in John chapter 10, Jesus is further unpacking what it's going to mean for him to be king, and he says this, I lay down my life for my sheep. He doesn't just know his sheep, he lays down his life for them. What kind of king does that? Kings are people who order others to lay down their life to protect them, to increase their power. But Jesus totally flips this on his head. He's the king who dies for his subjects. That's incredible. That is incredible. And the bottom line that I want us to see as we consider how this king came and how this king rules is that Jesus is the only king worth having over your life. He's that good. He's that compelling. 
He's that real. He's that loving. He is that gracious. You see, some rulers, some leaders that we look to in life, maybe some of them are okay. Most of them are a bit like Herod, but none of them will give their life for you. None of them. But Jesus did. He is the king worth having over your life. He's the king worth following. He's the king worth worshiping. And when we do, we experience deep rest for our souls. So what? How does this touch our life today? How might this bring peace and rest to your soul? I mean, is there trouble anywhere in our society? Some of you right now, this Christmas season, you're, you're you know, in financial constraints. You're troubled by that. Some of you are troubled by relational wreckage as, as a time comes when you're supposed to gather with family and it's supposed to be wonderful and joyous and you're just dreading it. We're all facing this new variant, Omicron. How many times have I turned to my wife this week and just said, not again, please, not again. I can't descend into the abyss again, right? There's fear, there's uncertainty. Some of us are just exhausted and exasperated by a pandemic that just doesn't seem to end. And in the midst of all this, we're all looking to someone or something. We're all looking to leaders. We're all looking to someone to shepherd us. Maybe it's the premier or the prime minister. Maybe it's the science table or health authorities. And let me just be clear. We need to pray for them, but we need to look to King Jesus. We need to look to King Jesus. He's near, my friends. And he knows he's the shepherd king. We experience pressure right now in our outward circumstances. But what about inside? What about in our souls? I want to speak to something that's very prevalent in our culture that uh, this message of King Jesus really challenges. And it challenges this. It challenges the core belief in our culture that the self is sovereign that each individual has this right to sovereign autonomy over their own life, and that any notion of a king or authority over you is oppressive. It's an intrusion on your right to self-fulfillment. And this focus on individual sovereignty, on self-sovereignty, comes from uh, that philosophical shift that there is no external truth, no morality, no God, nor power outside of ourselves that can direct our lives. And, And and really, the, the gospel of today, the message of today is throw off those oppressive sources of authority, right? Throw off morality because nobody has the right to tell you what's right or wrong or what to do with your life. You are God to yourself. You're in charge, so enhance your happiness. Build your life through whatever path seems right to you and just try not to harm anyone in the process. Now, I'm not being judgmental or condescending here. I just really want to identify uh, the subtle and powerful ways that our culture shapes us to resist the gospel, that our culture is shaping us to resist the reign of Jesus. Because when the Bible announces this good news, that Jesus is king, that, that he actually has a claim over us, that he makes demands on us, that he would invite us to deny ourselves, that grinds against our sovereignty. It grinds against that spirit of our age that tells us we should never deny ourselves. 
And our response to Jesus, because of how we're shaped to culture, and maybe for those of you who aren't followers of Jesus, maybe you just need to hear this and maybe have the lens removed to see things as they truly are. Our response to Jesus is often what Herod did, isn't it? You see, Herod is extreme. Don't get me wrong. He's this extreme picture. His paranoia, his cruelty, his willingness to go to any length to preserve himself and his power. And as extreme as it is, it's actually an accurate picture of human resistance to the kingship of Jesus. Herod shows us what becomes of us in the end when we make ourselves king or queen. We live in fear. We live in insecurity. And we end up spreading our misery to others. You see, for all his power, he's at the top of the food chain I mean, not really because he's under Caesar Augustus, but as far as things went in Jerusalem, he was at the top, but he wasn't free. He was trapped by his own fear and how he has built his identity around his power. New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner comments, Herod lives, tempting us ever and anew to doubt, hate, and resist the real king. That's the spirit of Herod. And the reason I really want to press into this today is because I actually see Herod in myself. I see the ways in which if if I hadn't given my life to King Jesus, if he hadn't gotten a hold of me and shown me his worth and changed me, I would be a mad king making a mad world in my own small way. I see that in me. But the good news, my friends, is that Jesus is the good king making a new world, and he is worth following. Just want to unpack self-sovereignty a little bit further. Just think about this with me, the impact that this has on our kids, on our, on our youth, even on our young adults. Um, this gospel of self-sovereignty places a huge burden on us, doesn't it? That you need to build your life. And, and often that life is, is given to you on social media as you enter the doom of the endless scroll and you see all these ideal pictures of people who seem to have built their best life. And then culture turns to you and says to you, okay, now you go ahead and do it. Build your life. And where does it leave us? It leaves us anxious with this overwhelming sense of failure and no clue how to build that life. It leaves us really wishing we were somebody else, right? Either that other person we see or the idealized version of ourselves that we will never measure up to. Culture is putting this burden on us. It's putting this burden on our kids. It's putting this burden on our teenagers. It's putting this burden on young adults trying to adult. It's putting this burden on real adults trying to look young and live young like the young adults. It's putting this burden on older adults who, who you know, are invited to live that ideal retired life with like really white teeth and an orange tan. I mean, think about it. It's ridiculous. I mean, I look at my kids and my kids can barely handle like the day-to-day stuff that life throws at them, like brushing their teeth or being told they can't eat candy all the time. It's like they melt down and have a tantrum, and yet our culture is telling them almost as soon as they're out of diapers, hey, Jimmy, hey, Susie, now you get to decide what the goal of your life is. Now you get to decide what's true for you. 
And then you get to live your truth. And anyone who doesn't celebrate that or affirm that is your enemy. And they are a threat to you. You need to cut them out of your life. Can you imagine why there is so much polarization at this present moment? It's because anyone who disagrees with what we've chosen for ourselves becomes the enemy. And we live in these echo chambers of the algorithm of our feeds that daily when we check it is just reinforcing us, reminding us that the universe revolves around me. And just think about it. It's the essential message of every Disney movie of the last five years. Be great. Live your truth. You can do it. Now, I love my kids. I have a high view of my kids, but I'm also realistic about them, that they don't have the capacity to decide on this level. Nor do teenagers, right? They're just pressure pots of hormones and change going on. But even as a well-educated, moderately well-adjusted adult, I know how dangerous it would be for me to take over the sovereignty of my life. I was talking to an adult educator very recently, and after teaching adults for many years, they told me straight up, adults do not know anything. How many of you, as adults, have made choices that a year or two later you regretted? See, all signs point to the fact that this modern script of self-sovereignty isn't working. We're more anxious and depressed than we've ever been before. We're we're troubled at the level of our souls because of this intense pressure to self-construct, and it's crushing us. We've got this pressure from our circumstances on the outside. We've got this pressure inside of us. And Jesus invites us to become our true self. He invites us to become our true self in him. And remember who this king is. He's the king who came into the very realness of our world, who knows. He's the king who is present. He's the king worth following. So how do we enter into this peace that this king brings? I want us to consider the magi. These were guys who had everything. They were at the top. They were the influencers of their day. And somehow God had worked in them to give them a deep desire, a deep hunger to seek for Jesus. See, in the midst of all the great stuff going on for them, they became aware of not the strongest desire that was pressing in on them, but the deepest desire for God. Herod is the pattern of resistance to Jesus and the Magi are the pattern of openness and response to him. And they show us practically what it means to live to make him king. Look at verses nine to 12 with me. It says, after they had heard the king, that is Herod, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What I want us to notice is first they seek Jesus. They get up and they go. I mean, so many of us have these times where we experience that tug on our soul, that sense that there's, there's got to be more. Get up and go pursue truth. Pursue this one who is calling you. But so often we don't act on it, right? Or we numb out to it. Or we get distracted. We don't press in. 
And the Magi press in. They seek him. Second of all, they worship. They worship him. This word worship is a very special word. It was something you only did to a king or a god. And at its heart, worship is about declaring worth. You can hear that, worth-ship. These guys who are kingmakers come to a baby born in a stable and they give him worth. They worship him. Think about that. They're not looking to get from Jesus. They're not looking for Jesus to enhance their life. They want to enhance his glory. They want to give him his due. And ironically, their life is enhanced. Don't get me wrong. But it's been enhanced because they have made Jesus the object of their worship. And last of all, what I want to say is over all of this, there's joy. There is such joy. In verse 10, in the translation we read from, it says overjoyed, but that doesn't even capture it. It's actually four different words that literally means they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And it's almost like redundant, but this is the word of God. There's no redundancy here. The point is, these guys were excited. There was joy. There was freedom as they sought the one they were looking for. And here's where joy really comes. It's when we find what we've been seeking all along. And that's what they experience. They find what they're looking for. And and so many of us live uh, along the lines of you too, where we still haven't found what we're looking for. But Jesus is who we're really looking for in the deepest level of our hearts. And the claim at Christmas that Jesus is king does demand a response from us. C.S. Lewis said that if that Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true is of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. See, this is very important. Of all the things that might seem important to you right now, this Christmas season, you know, the preparation, the parties, the food, the entertainment, maybe money, this is more immediately and eternally important to you. It's the question, where do you stand with King Jesus? Where do you stand with King Jesus? Are you resisting him? Or have you given him your allegiance? I want to invite the worship team up as we are going to respond to the word. And I want to leave you with this bedrock truth. Jesus is the king worth following. He's the king worth having over your life. He's the king who knows our trouble. He's the king who is near to us in our trouble. He's the shepherd king who gives his life for us. And he's the only one worth having over us. He's a way better king than we are to ourselves. And when we take him as king, we find life, love, and deep peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we respond to this word, would you continue to draw us out? Would you continue to open us? Would you continue to speak to us about how you are inviting us into deeper trust, into deeper loyalty to you today? Because you are indeed our king and you are good. Amen.
Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.